1: You know, Washington was continually insecure uh, about his lack of uh, formal education as as he was compared to uh, maybe a lot of his peers.
0: That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Brian Coyne discussing the emotional intelligence of George Washington. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster publisher of liberty is sweet the hidden history of the american revolution by woody holton available now wherever books are sold hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of dispatches i'm your host brady kreitzer today our guest is journal of the american revolution contributor brian Coyne, and he'll be discussing george washington's emotional intelligence you know The word, the term, emotional intelligence uh, is a very important word in modern circles today. It's basically an understanding of not our IQ in terms of information we know, but how we can read our own emotions, how we can read the emotions of others. It's a really important leadership quality. Uh, It's about responding, not reacting. Now, it's typically very difficult to really gauge someone's emotional intelligence from the 18th century, because we just don't have enough information about them, about the way they respond, about the way they feel, about the things they do and say, to really accurately gauge that. Unless, of course, you're talking about GW, uh, because we have a literal mountain of letters about him journals that about him uh things he said and things he did and the way that he felt there's actually enough there to, to put together a pretty interesting psychological profile of the man and brian Coyne has done that it's an interesting article it's a fascinating article uh and just one of the many great new approaches you'll find at the journal of the american revolution so sit back relax and enjoy our interview with brian Coyne. Ryan Coyne, thank you for joining us. Uh, It's great to be with you. Tell us about your background.
1: Well, I am uh, currently an active duty Army chaplain, uh, serving at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, I've been a chaplain for about 17 years, uh, which is really cool as we look at George Washington, as we'll talk about him. He's the one who requested to Congress in July of 1775 uh, that each regiment should have a chaplain authorized. And uh, because the same thing, the same thing now as then was uh, battle is uh, is hard and they need someone to have uh, care for their souls. And so his chaplains, just as today, they, we nurture the living, we care for the wounded, we honor the dead, we advise the command on morals, ethics, morale, religion and, uh, you know, and care for care for the army. And uh, so I've been doing that for about 17 years. And, uh, I was originally a infantry officer, I graduated from West Point and uh, with a degree in military history, uh, kind of always been a passion and and loved, uh, military history. And then I've been fortunate enough to go on and, you know, seminary degree and a doctorate of ministry and, and, uh, just recently, uh, finished, uh, a year at the national war college in Washington, DC.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Well, while I was at uh, the War College, uh, I was fortunate enough to take an elective on George Washington uh, led by Dr. David Arnold, and it was really an amazing class because we looked at George Washington through the lens of strategic leadership and how he uh, managed his role, both as the head of the Army, but but really, I mean, in our modern concept of how he was uh, leading uh, not only as a combatant commander, but also as Essentially, our entire defense department as the head of it. Uh, if we look at it in our modern constructs, and one of the things as we we kind of explored uh, what has been called the Newberg conspiracy, um, it made me think about uh, a, a topic called emotional intelligence and something I've been interested in and, and reading on. And and then as I read further in David Head's great coverage of of this event, the crisis of peace, I was. I was just thinking, George Washington. Really, he's he's nailing it here. This emotional intelligence he's displaying was was uh, pretty amazing. Uh, his grasp on uh, his own emotions and, and those of others, and, and how he controlled those and worked with those, and to actually be successful.
0: What is emotional intelligence?
1: Sure, yeah. Emotional intelligence. If we were to liken it to uh, an IQ. Uh, this has often been been called EQ, and it, it as a parallel, whereas emotional intelligence, or I mean, uh, uh, IQ, looks at uh, our cognitive ability, and and what we think of traditionally as intelligence. Uh, this kind of newer field is only dating back to 1990. Uh, it looks at the what role our emotions and understanding those uh, has. And then also how we can recognize, understand, and influence the emotions of others. So if you think about it, kind of in a uh, maybe four quadrants. So there is a, uh, an awareness, a self-awareness of our emotional state, why we feel the way we do, why we respond the way we do, why we get angry, why we're happy, and an and assessment of that. But then also a, a management piece of that. So we manage our own, uh, regulate our own emotions. And uh, someone with a high emotional intelligence is able to adapt and, and, uh, and work with their own emotions and use them for their benefit and, uh, and hold back on maybe the ones that are more destructive uh, or destructive effects. But then it also entails uh, a social component. And so the same way, awareness and management. So it's that we are aware of uh, the emotions of others. So you think about people who can walk into a room and 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 interact, and they can really read the room. They can uh, talk to someone else, and 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 through empathy, realize where they're coming from, and and what's important to them, and how they're responding emotionally. But then also. Uh, the piece that really ties into leadership is the relationship management part of this. And this is where you you can use this understanding where people are at and your own emotions and how they they interact, and then using that to develop others, to influence uh, the team and an organization uh, to inspire others in your leadership and and to, uh, really work through conflict and uh, teamwork and all of those challenging issues. And then, uh, you know, as we look at it, emotional intelligence, is, uh, if we think about it, kind of in uh, in terms of, uh, well, let me just use use a quote to a, a movie that maybe maybe folks are familiar with called Office Space. And uh, if you remember, there was a a guy who uh, ended up getting pushed down in the basement, and he just wanted his little red swing line stapler. Uh, he didn't deal with people very well. Um, but he could have he could be knocking it out of the park on understanding, you know, the paperwork in front of him or uh, the numbers that he's that he's crunching, and could be very very intelligent. But he didn't really react well with people. He didn't understand his own emotions. He didn't understand. The rules of the game and social constructs and how people interact, uh, and so he, wouldn't really, he wasn't really effective in dealing with other humans. Uh, whereas, kind of the uh, the main character in the story was very efficient, very good at understanding people, uh, to the point where he was didn't do anything at work and and was lazy, and and yet. Some folks loved him and thought he was awesome, and it was because he could deal well with others. He could understand their emotions, respond to them, and manage his own emotions in that. And so the research seems to indicate that uh, those with high emotional intelligence are more effective leaders. And it makes sense because leadership's all about bringing together a team to accomplish great things, uh, some kind of mission. And so it's all about people. And since people are emotional creatures, uh, it makes sense that the best leaders will have uh, be in tune with their own emotions and also with the emotions of others and be able to manage both and, and use those emotions uh, to accomplish the mission and to bring people together in that accomplishment.
0: How did Washington regulate his emotions?
1: So to start with, uh, what's interesting is, is to say he regulated his emotions uh, I think we have to remember first that uh, George had a reputation as a hothead, uh, especially early on, as in his younger days, an uncontrolled hothead. And in fact, Lord Fairfax, who was a uh, who who lived down the road uh, from uh, young Washington and his family, he was a mentor, an employer, and a friend. He wrote to his uh, Washington's mother uh, in 1748, and he said, "I." I wish I could say that he governs his temper. He is subject to attacks of anger on provocation, sometimes without just cause. Um, so he really was a bit of a hot, a hothead. And we even see this at the beginning of the revolutionary war at Kipps Bay in New York, uh, in 1776, as his troops were running for their lives before, uh, the British army, uh, was something that most people never saw of George Washington. And he was hopping mad. And he came out uh, under a barrage of oaths. it said. He whipped men with his riding cane. He, uh, he did not spare the officers. And again, he, was, he, he, he pulled out his unloaded pistol and snapped the hammer over and over at men who were, who were running by. And he was just, I guess the word is apoplectic. Um, and in fact, one of his aides uh, seized his bridle and led his horse away, and uh, uh, one because of the danger of the approaching British, but I think also uh, maybe to, to to tamp that down a little bit. And uh, so to say that he regulated his motions, we're really saying he he was uh, he accomplished something because his inclination was to be a hothead, and so. Oh, even when we talk about, when we look at it in terms of the Newburgh conspiracy, this, um, you know, this, uh, what has been called the Newburgh conspiracy as a, a, a group of officers uh, encamped in Newburgh, the end of the war, they're waiting on a peace treaty. They really are all, they're keeping an eye on the British in New York, but really are not doing much. And these officers had been, uh, uh, they had some grievances. And when they wrote a letter, uh, encouraging uh, all the officers to meet so that they could take up their grievances uh, more forcefully with Congress. Uh, George Washington was—he—he uh, he was pretty mad, as the reports go, when he first realized that this was coming from his, his army, uh, this mutiny, uh, of sorts. And, but yet, when he responded, uh, he was very restrained. He was very measured. Uh, he dealt with the issue head-on, but uh, but he uh, you know he did not go out and 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 threaten folks with uh, hanging, which would have been justified for a mutiny. Uh, he he did not uh, take that emotion out immediately, but he he was measured in his general orders and how he managed the the upcoming week and the meetings. And then when he actually dealt with his officers face to face, he showed that even though he was angry, even though he felt betrayed, even though all of those things were bubbling up inside of him, uh, he, when he dealt with others in writing uh, verbally, uh, was very restrained and measured, uh, which really just shows uh, how much he had worked at this this uh, regulating his own emotions.
0: Let's talk about, if we could, George Washington's empathetic side.
1: Well, I think um, it, when you look at George Washington, uh, he seems to really understand, especially his officers, and especially in this, in this time at Newburgh, uh, in the time of all this controversy, you know, it's interesting. Zabigail Adams uh, wrote about him that that he has a dignity which forbids familiarity, but is married with an easy, appealing mind which creates love and reverence. And, and if you think about it in the terms of 18th century officership, um, there really was a, a, a more dividing line between the officers and enlisted, between the gentlemen and 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 the mass of the army. And he but he once said this, he wrote to uh, advice to some of his officers, and he said, "Be easy and uh, condescending in your deportment to your officers, but not too familiar, lest you subject yourself to a want of that respect which is necessary to support a proper command. And so what he's really saying is in condescending, not in our modern term, but more of getting at their level, uh, coming down to where they're at and meeting them where they're at but also keeping this level of separation, uh, which was he thought was very necessary to properly command an army. Now, in the Newburgh conspiracy, uh, Washington was very well aware of the issues at stake. He understood what his officers were going through. They had left their lives. Uh, they had sacrificed tremendously, especially financially, just as he did, as Mount Vernon was— uh, was kind of falling apart uh, after years of of his uh, without his presence. Uh, so he really understood where they're at, and they understood that as a uh, someone who is uh, really concerned with honor, as as most 18th century gentlemen were and officers were, um, that they these these men would go back home and they wouldn't be able to move in the social circles that they would be expected, that they should be expected to move in. In fact, they, they probably would have trouble even finding wives if they didn't already have them because of, uh, they were about to go back without a pension, uh, and even, uh, at this point, uh, possibly without pay that they had been due for however many years they had been serving because Congress had not acted. And so, Uh, these mirror some of his own frustrations with Congress over the course of the war of them not being able to provide uh, financially for his army. Uh, But it it shows in in his uh, correspondence with Congress at the time, his correspondence with other officers, his correspondence with friends, uh, that he really understood the position that that his officers were in, and what it was going to do to them and their future, and and really worrying about what they might do about it, uh, that could upset the entire uh, victory uh, that was the, at, at, of the revolution, that it might all be turned uh, because of this. But he first knew that they, he understood where they were at. And that allowed him to respond effectively to uh, to these emotions that they had and 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 what he thought was very right emotions uh, but as we'll see they he disagreed uh, vehemently about how to address the issues.
0: How did Washington use emotional intelligence to work with his uh subordinate officers
1: so <clears throat> when he realized that this, uh, anonymous summons to the officers to, uh, to have them formulate their, their, uh, uh, their issues with Congress and this nation and the army, uh, once he realized it came from inside his camp, like he said, he was really upset because up until this point, he really thought it was coming from agitators in Philadelphia. Uh, the ones who really, w- who were moving towards a more federalist system who wanted more, control and power in the hands of Congress. Um, but now he realized they're coming from his own officers. And he considered this the height of disloyalty and the height of dishonor. And so he like, he was mad. He was upset. But how he worked with them through this process showed that he understood and regulated his own uh, emotions. The first one, he acted decisively, but he wasn't rushed. So his first general order that he put out after he found out about this was uh, he put an into the meeting that they had called. He said, no, you're not meeting them. But he didn't stop there. Uh, he set another date on the next Saturday, again, about a week. And he said there would be a senior officer present uh, to roll up the results to present the grievances that they have. Uh, so really what he was doing there was just saying uh, he was taking control of the initiative here. Uh, he took the initiative from what he considered the rebellious folks, and uh, and he, he owned it. But he realized that he couldn't just put an end to it because that would just make it worse. So he he gave them a date, and he said, this is when you're going to show up, and you're going to do this. And, oh, by the way, a senior officer will be there to make sure that your grievances are are understood and rolled up and presented to Congress and and sent up the chain, so to speak. And then to show his kind of unrushed, uh, the next general orders that he put out were just normal stuff. They were about uh, court-martials, and they were about sanitation, and they were about promotions and, and the normal stuff. Uh, but what he also did, and this is important, I think it comes back around to uh, w- at the end, is his officers having confidence that he's he's advocating for them, is that he sent some letters off about this and the first one was to the president of the congress and he 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 sent all the documents he he has and he says hey this is i've got this uh the the officers are good but hurry up in resolving this issue um essentially saying i have got this trust your army don't don't overreact and then but then to uh to hamilton and jones personally he wrote and he, I think he knew that these would, they're also members of Congress, and this was going to get out, and they were going to influence things. Um, he basically said, this is really bad, and it could get worse, and it could it could mess up everything we have worked for. Um, now, in those days leading up to the, uh, the meeting that he had set, uh, he met one-on-one with his officers. And in fact, one account shows that he just they, they were coming and going from his uh, quarters uh, every hour on the hour. And and what he did is he looked at them individually, and uh, he he appealed to them personally as a commander in chief. Apart from the group, apart from uh, maybe the uh, the sitting around with wine, uh, complaining about their fate, uh, he looked at them personally as his commander, as a commander in chief, as one who had inspired uh, tremendous loyalty over the years and, and essentially wanted them to look him in the eye and tell him their position and whether he was going to back, they were going to back his play or, uh, or, or which side they were going to be on. And so I think this shows just a lot of understanding of the organizational dynamics in these individual men. Because uh, it's, it's different when you're in a group and you're complaining and you're, you're feeling sorry for yourself and even with legitimate grievances. But it's another to look their commander in the eye who has appealed to you and made his case personally to you and to, to make the decision then to still side with those who opposed him. Um, so as he dealt the whole week leading up to this, um, uh it really showed his emotional intelligence and then another piece is when he uh he actually uh the group is assembled in the temple of virtue which is in the new windsor kent cantonment there's a, a recreated one there if you're ever uh near west point new york uh it's a great little site um that has been preserved there and in this temple of virtue the assembled officers are there And uh, and he comes riding up and it 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 appeared from the reactions that no one really expected him to come. He never said he was going to come. Uh, He said a senior officer would be present. And uh, but he showed up because he had a case to make. And after he made his case, he left and turned it over, uh, turned over the rest of the meeting to actually compile the grievances and to talk. Uh, without him in the room, but he realized the importance of this issue, the momentous occasion that it was, uh, and it, it demanded his personal presence, uh, the personal appeal of of one who who had commanded them, who had fought by their side, who who always felt as part of this great army. Um, So I think that all showed just his grasp of of the dynamics going on there.
0: Do you consider Washington a moving speaker?
1: So so I'd say yes and no from what I've seen. Um, He had his moments, but it wasn't without effort. In fact, uh, Washington struggled his whole life with the fear of public speaking. Uh, Some have proposed that it was due to the numerous health issues over the years involving his throat and lungs. Uh, especially uh, pleurisy, uh, that it had an ability on it had an effect on his ability to speak well. Um, uh, in fact, some uh, some have said his his voice was high, weak, and breathy. In fact, uh, George Mercer, a friend of Washington, wrote that his voice is agreeable rather than strong. And so, especially in the day, uh, public speaking was uh, largely uh, about projection. It was about commanding the audience in, in a day before uh, uh, microphones and amplifiers and such. And so, just like some of the preachers of the day would say the first uh, the first uh, requirement for a preacher is to have broad shoulders, meaning you had to be able to project. You had to have one power, uh, which Washington didn't seem to have difficulty with that. Uh, the other thing that we we think is that uh, his teeth uh, impacted his speaking. Uh, we know he was very self-conscious about his teeth and uh, how that you know how he had dental issues uh, most of his life, and in fact he had just uh, he had just gotten some new uh, uh, dentures around this time while he was at Newburgh, But all of his letters about the dentures were it was almost like they're written in code so he's very self-conscious about this and dentures of the day didn't actually stick in your mouth very well so it it really required him to keep his lips kind of tight so all of that just the physicality of public speaking um, uh, i think that he was a little bit at a disadvantage now what he what uh, he lacked maybe in the physical, he overcame with preparation. So, you know, in his library and, and uh, Founders Online, you can see there's notes of, of some of his speeches, uh, including the Newberg address, and they're covered with speaking notes. So just like some now do, and I tend to do, is, uh, you will know, put exclamation points, you put pause marks to remember to take a breath and and let what you just said sink in, uh, uh, you know, Marks to repeat something for emphasis. Uh, he was very intentional, both about his message, the content of it, and also the way in which he communicated. Um, so he was not, he, I think he, it seems like he felt like he had a weakness here, unlike some of the, especially compared to some of the other founders who were profound orators, both uh, both from an intellectual and argumentation, but also stylistically and, uh, the ability for people just to hear and listen to you. So in fact, during the, the Newberg address, um, you know, he, he really had a, um, uh, he started out his speech, which both shows one, just his, um, uh, again, as emotional intelligence, he started out his speech, and it was inspirational. It was identifying with the assembled officers. It was talking about their shared history and their honor and the virtue and their uh, victories and what had been accomplished over the years together. Uh, in some ways, I think about it in my own mind as as he was speaking. If this were a movie, this is where, like, the flag would drop behind him Stars and Stripes Forever would start playing low, you know, in the background. Uh, like, this is inspirational stuff, and, and, you know, it can't help but be moved. And there, and it seemed like the, the officers were moved. Uh, but then he felt the need to start in on a very academic argument, um, which was, as you look at his argument, it's, it's a good argument, but it feels very unemotional. And uh, and he's trying to intellectually move the officers. And it seems like there's some accounts that this kind of fell flat uh, and it didn't um, and it didn't really uh, uh, achieve what he thought it would. And no, that's, a, that's not taking anything away from him. Every order, every person given a speech has, you know, points where they just, you know, OK, I thought that would have worked, but it, it didn't that I didn't quite connect with my audience here. But overall, it just seems like he, he went over the top in making sure that his message and the way he delivered it was going to impact the audience the way that he wanted it to. And it, and it seems mostly in this Newberg address, he really, he really did that, especially up front.
0: What moments stand out to you regarding his ability to adapt?
1: So I would say this leadership, it is about bringing together a team to accomplish objectives. And um, and for Washington, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that his task was nothing short of holding together uh, this under-resourced army against the most powerful army in the world for, for years. Um, and now, at this critical point, as a peace treaty is being negotiated, as he has officers who are thinking about taking up arms, against Congress um, to get what they believe they are entitled to and had been promised um, really the literal fate of the revolution and this young nation rested on his shoulders. And so not only um, to command, well, you know, a leader must constantly balance the needs of the mission and the needs uh, of the lead, the soldiers, the organization, the individuals in that organization. And it is a, a constant tension because the mission requires a lot, especially when we're talking about combat, when we're talking about uh, an army, uh, the mission requires uh, great sacrifice, even to the point of death. Um, but at the same time, caring for these individuals, these individual human beings is is of utmost importance in building this bond and the, the team that will accomplish any mission because the command The organization is not a machine, but a team of living, breathing humans who have skills and backgrounds, different motivations and values. And so the leader must understand themselves first, um, which Washington seemed to have done. Because when a commander speaks, there is more riding on it than just casual conversation. You know, morale rises and falls based on whether the Army believes in the leader. And so... A, a, a careless word, a phrase can have great impact positively and negatively. And so he seemed to measure, and he didn't speak a lot to his assembled army. There was occasional pre-battle speeches, um, but it seems like this gathering at Newburg at the end of the war was really the first time he had gathered all of his officers together and spoke to them. Uh, so he was very measured, and in his writing, he was able to be even more measured. Um, but he also had to understand his soldiers. And uh, he might have lacked, as we look at it from a modern sense, he might have lacked quite a bit when it came to understanding his enlisted men uh, and, and the, the masses of the army. Uh, but he certainly demonstrated a keen uh, understanding of his um of his officers and what they were going through and, and the challenges that was facing them. And so that allowed him to make decisions, policies, and, uh, and, and head off many things throughout the years, whether it was other munities or this one at Newburgh.
0: How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better?
1: I, you know, I think one of my main goals, uh, in this, uh, was to help understand Washington as a person, as a leader, Uh, not as some whitewashed Roman god, who we know many, you know, the images and and what many have thought of him, uh, the legends of George Washington. And then more recently, some more critical uh, scholarship as we look at George Washington as a a slaveholder and uh, a harsh disciplinarian, both both slaves and his soldiers, and uh, one who ignited a, a world war through his impetuousness. Um, either side, I think we we, under, we have little to learn from, because on the one hand, if one's godlike, well, that's not me. That's not my contemporaries. That's not leaders currently dealing with the challenges of the modern world, uh, because you know he's perfect, and I don't have much to learn from him. On the other hand, if we just call someone, uh, you know, which we tend to do sometimes now, is that we call someone evil, and then but we write him off to learn the lessons that we should learn from maybe their mistakes, from maybe where they were misguided, um, and maybe had character flaws and all of those things that are human. And so, you know, Washington was a real man uh, who had. His own background, his own baggage from childhood, and as a young person, he had his own mentors who who led him in a direction. He had his own insecurities. Um, you know, Washington was continually insecure uh, about his lack of uh, formal education, as it, as he was compared to uh, maybe a lot of his peers, and he had his own talents and 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 his own strengths, and so. At Newburgh, he had this incredible burden of command, but not just a military command. Uh, his actions would have repercussions on this new nation. And and he was just as angry as anyone at Congress for their inability to provide uh, for him and his army. Uh, he wanted to go home for the first time in, I think, six years and be done with the war. But he was sitting there in camp with his men. He felt betrayed by officers he trusted. So he was, a, he was a real guy facing real challenges, um, and in this particular case, and, and all, most of the time throughout the Revolution, he rose to the challenge. Um, he overcame his insecurities. He overcame uh, the uncertainty of it, and he um, made decisions, and he forcefully carried them out, and he, um, you know, as we would say now, sometimes maybe he faked the funk. He, he faked. You know, you fake it till you make it. And so I, I, I got to show more confidence that I have um, because no one's going to follow someone who doesn't even have confidence in their own decisions. But, but battle and warfare, uh, there's so much uncertainty. So he's a real guy. And, um, and I think by looking at him through the lens of emotional intelligence, especially, uh, we can kind of see some of this drama and the tension that is involved. And then we can say, we can put ourselves in the our own situ, that that situation. You go, oh, okay. Well, I felt uncertain. I felt secure about how insecure about how I was dressed and my physical appearance and how I'm coming across. But I know that I have to lead, and, and I know and 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 putting all that together, um, I think that helps us understand this human being of George Washington, and then makes his leadership lessons. Um, something that we can all resonate with, uh, whether we're, you know, we're leading classroom or we're leading in a corporate boardroom or, uh, we're leading in our own families and neighborhoods. Um, these are, th- these things that we experience good and bad. Uh, and so I think that's really, for me, that's, that's really what I, I think, um, helps us understand this era and understanding this man in his own context uh, and in his own skin. Uh, And then we can translate that into our own.
0: Brian Coyne, thanks again. Oh, thank you for having me. It's it's been incredible. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia.